0: So we are in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 17. And what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about his weakness. He's beginning a kind of a long series, the next few chapters, of dealing with some of the complaints of his adversaries in Corinth, that they think that he is weak, unimpressive, and that it's undermining his ministry, that he's not a legitimate apostle, a legitimate minister. And they they think he's weak for a lot of different reasons. Uh, they, They think he's maybe not as charismatic as they want, maybe not as good of a public speaker as they want. He's not wealthy. He chooses to do physical labor and work as a tent maker, and his adversaries undermine all of that to try to undo and illegitimize his ministry. And so what Paul is beginning to highlight here in this passage is weakness. His weakness, our weakness, but how God works through weakness for his glory. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to highlight three truths that Paul talks about from this passage about weakness. And this is what they are. That we have strength through weakness. That we are the fragrance of Christ. And we are commissioned by God. So we have strength through weakness. We are the fragrance of Christ and we are commissioned by God. We're going to start with the first one here. We have strength through weakness. It comes from Second Corinthians verses uh, in chapter two verses twelve through fourteen. But when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And so what we see here, Paul is traveling on his missionary journey, and he goes to Troas with the goal to preach the gospel. This is an important port city, and if you're trying to be strategic about preaching the gospel, this is where you'd go that that people come there, travel there to sell goods. And so Paul strategically can go there, preach the gospel, and send people out from there uh, to, to, to be ministers of the word of God, to be missionaries as they travel and go. And so his prayer and his hope was that God would open the door for the gospel to be preached. And what we see here in verse 12, that it was that God opened the door for him as he traveled to Troas, that, that he had opportunities to preach the gospel. And it seemed... Like people were responding, that they were coming to know Jesus or interested, he had opportunities there. But what we see as we continue on is that his spirit was not at rest. So God is doing these things. He's opening these doors, but he has stress, anxiety. He's, his spirit does not have peace. And this is tied to him not being able to find Titus here in Troas. And so the question for us, even as you read this, you're probably like, Why? Why is his spirit not at rest? What's going on here? Why is he looking for Titus? And that's tied to his anxiety and his stress. And so uh, some of what we know here, and, and Pastor Rick mentioned this uh, uh, last week a little, but what has happened here is that Paul is uh, has anxiety and stress over his relationship with the church in Corinth. So what we know historically is Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and widely the church in Corinth did not repent. They did not turn back to Jesus. They did not come under Paul's ministry, but they rejected him. And what Paul references that uh, Pastor Rick mentioned last week in chapter 2 is Paul references a painful visit, but also another letter written in tears. So it seems like after 1 Corinthians was written, Paul went and visited the church in Corinth and it was painful. It was dealing with conflict, trying to get them to resubmit to following Jesus, and and, and they didn't. It was painful. And then as a result, he writes a second letter that we don't have, that isn't scripture. Not everything that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote is scripture, but he wrote this tearful letter asking them to repent, to turn back, to surrender to Jesus. And what we see here is that Titus is the one that was sent to deliver this letter to the church in Corinth. And the reason we know that is first Paul here is looking for Titus. He's searching for him. He's he's anxiously waiting to hear back from him. But if you, if you look ahead here in chapter 7 in 2 Corinthians, Paul does find Titus in Macedonia. And so he finds him and he gets a, re- a report from the church in Corinth and so we we know that Paul sent him to deliver that letter. And so he's anxiously waiting to hear back from Titus and connect with him. And so Paul is, is, is anxious. He does not have peace. And maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've had such a, a broken relationship, conflict has happened so hard in your life that your spirit is not at rest, that you are anxious, you don't have peace, that in the back of your mind, no matter what you have to do, you are thinking through that conflict, how it's going to get resolved, what you could have done done differently, and it's almost like you cannot function until that conflict is resolved, and I think we can relate to Paul in that here. He he wants this conflict resolved. So much so, for better or worse, he leaves Troas to go to Macedonia. He goes there to meet with Titus, to connect with him, and hopefully get an update that that him and the church in Corinth have, have reconciled. But more than that, that they've surrendered to Jesus and are living in the way that he's called them to. And so he wants uh, his his spirit to be at rest. And what's interesting about this is Paul seems to be highlighting here his weakness. You know, if I was writing 2 Corinthians, I don't know if I'd go into that. I don't know if I'd talk about how I was having anxiety and this conflict of relationship that I didn't have peace. Especially when my adversaries in the church in Corinth, one of their biggest complaints about Paul was his weakness. And yet despite that, what Paul does here is he highlights it. He says, you know what? I am weak. I am weak. I am unimpressive. Your accusations about me are true. And then he transitions here in verse 14, such a stark contrast. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession. So Paul is comparing himself, contrasting himself to Jesus. A stark contrast. So Paul is weak, but God is strong. Paul is unimpressive, but Jesus is impressive. And that's what Paul's trying to highlight here. Yeah, you know what? Your accusations against me are true. Yes, I am weak. Yes, I am frail. But thanks be to God because he is not. He is strong. He is powerful. And he has triumphed. And he uses this really cool illustration of a triumphal procession. Which isn't something that we probably think about very much or know what that is. But in his culture, it would have instantly brought to life, the life this image, this illustration that they would have known. So a triumphal procession would have happened in Rome when they, they conquered a city. So the conquering general would have marched through the city. They just uh, uh, took over. Their soldiers that fought with them would have trailed behind them. It would have showed their power and prestige and then behind the soldiers would have been the most impressive captive soldiers. The ones they just defeated in battle, showing off their power and might. And so they, his audience in Corinth would have thought of this instantly. Uh, and, and so to kind of show you what this looks like, uh, the movie Gladiator. Anybody a fan? Anybody like Gladiator? Okay, a few of you, okay. Uh, it's, it's getting older now, but great movie. But it has a... <laughs> Yeah, it is. Uh, But it's got a great image of what this looks like. So, help us picture it. Let's turn our attention to the screen now. so i hope that gives you kind of an image of what paul's talking about here this parading through that christ has conquered that he's been triumphant uh and, and he is powerful and he is awesome uh this is again something they would have thought about a ton uh, there's actually a picture of uh, titus's arch that i want to show you this happened this this is to celebrate this was uh, built in rome to celebrate rome conquering jerusalem as they put down a revolt in Judea in AD 71 and what this arch is depicting is the triumphal procession through Jerusalem so this is after second corinthians uh, was written but it's to show you this is this was prevalent this was culturally significant and so they would have known what paul was talking about here and so we look at this text what paul is identifying here is this comparison between strength and weakness And so let's look at the text again. You might misunderstand what Paul is saying here as he talks about a triumphal procession. I think at times we can read that and say, you know what? Jesus is powerful. He has triumphed. And, And we identify in that triumphal procession as a soldier conquering with him. But that isn't what Paul's point is. That isn't what his point is. He's actually trying to make this stark contrast that he is weak and God is strong. And so who Paul is identifying here with in the triumphal procession and what we identify with is not the soldier conquering with Jesus, but the captive slave that's been defeated. And so I want you to picture Paul's conversion that he was an enemy of God persecuting the church and yet God captured his heart. He changed his life. And what Paul was living for, he's no longer living for. He surrendered his life to Jesus. It's changed everything in the same way uh, a captured slave would be in battle. And so Paul's purpose here in this contrast isn't to say, you know what, I'm strong just like Jesus. It's, you know what, I'm weak. I'm unimpressive. But again, the goal of my ministry, the goal of our lives isn't to make us be impressive, but to point to the triumphal king who is impressive. That's the point of this passage, these verses, These verses that Paul is weak, but that Jesus is strong. That we are unimpressive, but God is a triumphal king. And, and it's really this cool understanding of even how salvation works. It's not because we are strong, but because God is impressive, and he has done what we could not do. And so Paul's favorite image in scripture is not one we are, where we are conquering soldiers, but that we are slaves with Jesus. That our lives are not our own, but they're they're Jesus's and they're surrendered to him. And part of the mystery of, of the gospel is that God has chosen to use broken men and women like you and like me to be a part of his purposes. Like the end of verse 14 says that through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God. Even though we are captives, even though we are weak and unimpressive, God has said, I'm going to use you if you are mine if your life is surrendered to me, to make me known everywhere. And so one of the, the best verses that I think depicts this, our lives surrendered to Jesus, is Romans 12.1. Let me read it for us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so what Romans 12.1 says is the only right response to what Jesus has done for us. Is, is in worship to lay our lives back down to him, that our lives are not our own, they're Jesus's. And that's Paul's imagery in 2 Corinthians as well, that our right response, that Paul's ministry in our lives is not about making much of us, to living for our comfort or our power or our prestige, but to live to point to who is impressive, the triumphal King, Jesus that brings us to our second truth this morning, that we are the fragrance of Christ, and it comes from Second Corinthians 2 verses 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among the, uh, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one fragrance from death to death, the other fragrance from life to life. And so the beautiful thing about this passage is that we are not our own, that Jesus has a call on our lives. If we have a relationship with him, we surrendered our lives to him, uh, we are weak, but through Christ, he's got a plan and purpose for our life. That's what verse 14 in the previous passage says, that we are the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. Everywhere. That part of the purpose of your life, it's it's tied to the Great Commission. Why you are here is that God has said, if you are in Christ, part of your purpose is as you go to be the fragrance of the knowledge of God. That you are so much like Jesus. That in your actions, in your words, that people get a whiff of who Jesus is. And when they're around him, they want more of him because they're near you. It's this beautiful picture, this beautiful challenge, and it goes on in verse 15 and 16, is that we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved, but also among those who are perishing. So everyone, we are the the smell, the aroma of Jesus to to those who are surrendering their lives to Jesus, but also to those who have rejected him. Uh, Everywhere we go, to everyone, we are the smell and aroma of God. And some, it smells like life, and to others, it smells like death. And I love that Paul uses the, the uh, illustration of fragrance here. Smell is such a, uh, a strong scent or, or, or sense. And we identify so many things with smell. Like, I want you to think about what is your favorite smell. What's a nostalgic smell for you? Uh, So many of us, I'm sure you have smells where you instantly identify it with your childhood, with your grandparents, with your mom and dad, and it brings you back to that place. Smells are so important that way. I was trying to think about my favorite smell. My wife is a great cook, and one of my favorite things that she makes is this pot roast. And it's just one of those things like if you're not there... When she starts to make it and you come home and you open the door and the aroma of it just whacks you in the face. You have meals like that and you're like, your whole house smells like it. It's incredible. If I'm in a bad mood, if I open the door and the pot roast is on the stove, man, it changes everything, right? My mood's better. I can't wait to eat it because smell's important. It, it impacts the way we think. Uh, it, it's powerful. And In the same way, smells can be like putrid and push us away. And then there's the weird tension where some people love certain smells and other people hate it. Like some people, even if I say the word tuna, you're like repulsed. And other people are like, man, that sounds like a good lunch. Let's go. Uh and so what what I think Paul's saying here is not that our smell changes to different people, that as we go, it's not like our, our smell changes, but people respond differently to the fragrance aroma we're giving off if we're if we're following Christ well. That if we're pursuing Jesus, if we're our lives are surrendered to him, if we're trying to live for him, then as we act and speak and share the gospel and point people to Jesus, to those who are in a relationship with Jesus or actively coming into a relationship with Jesus, it will be life to them. It will be a smell like a pot roast where you're like, man, I can't wait to get in this house. This is amazing. I want I want more to be around this person because of who we're pointing to, towards and they'll experience Jesus through us. And to those who are rejecting Jesus and have said, I don't want anything to do with him, as you live in obedience to the word of God, counterculture to our world, at times it, it will be a disgusting smell to them. That as you live for Jesus, it might push people away, and at times they might scrunch up their nose to you. That's what Paul's saying. He's lived it. He's lived it in Corinth. As he followed Jesus, some people loved it, and some people hated it. But part of the challenge of this that I don't want you to miss is this. That you might be giving off a bad smell, and it isn't because of Jesus. You might be giving off a bad smell, and it isn't because of Jesus. And here's the tension. Right, We want to live for Jesus. We want to smell uh, like him and give off his aroma. Uh, but at times we use the passage where Jesus says, hey, they're going to hate you because they hated me. They're going to reject you because they rejected me. And we use it as an excuse. Where maybe at times where w- we are actually being a jerk and somebody doesn't like us. And we say, oh, that's, they don't like me because of Jesus. And so this involves some honest evaluation. Am I living in such a way That when people interact with me, they experience Jesus. That when I'm in a a room, when I talk to them, the way I speak to them, the way I treat them, uh, it makes them want more of Jesus because of me. Or am I living in such a way that I'm saying these true things about Jesus but I'm living like a hypocrite and they can see my life does not match up and it gives them a bad smell, a putrid smell when they're around me. That I'm living this fake uh, uh, religion where I have these white picket fence up but I'm far from God. And so which one is it? The cool thing about this passage is that God has a plan and a mission for your life. That God has said, if you are in Jesus, your your purpose, why you are here is to be the fragrance of the knowledge of God to the world, to everyone, everywhere as you go. And so the question is, do you smell like Jesus? As they experience you, as you live, are you exemplifying him in such a way that they they want more of him, and it's a a pleasant aroma to them? We want to live on mission, live radically to smell like Jesus. And that brings us to our third point this morning. We are commissioned by God. This comes from the end of verse 16 and into verse 17. Who is sufficient for these things? If we are not like so many other peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So verse 16 starts with this rhetorical question. Who is sufficient for these things? Of all that Paul is talking about, who's sufficient? Who can do this? Who can actually live as the fragrance of God to the world? No one, the the answer is no one, not even Paul. And so even as we talk about being the fragrance of Christ, it's not to beat you up, it's not to say, hey, you're going to do that perfectly, but part of the mindset shift that needs to happen with us is that we actually realize that's what God's called us to, that we have this awesome mission to actually be like Jesus in such a way that then when they're around, people are around us, they experience Jesus. And so we need to know that's the mission, not that we're going to do it perfectly or that we are sufficient in our own power and impressiveness, but that God is sufficient for us. And so even Paul, as he talks about himself, he says, you know what? I'm not sufficient for my ministry. I'm not sufficient for my apostleship. I am weak and I'm unimpressive. But again, my goal of my life and your life is not to make much of me, not to point to how impressive I am, but point to the triumphal king who is ultimately impressive. So again, we are in, uh, insufficient to do what God's called us to do, but he is sufficient. For you're not, so like so many others, peddlers of God's word. And so Paul begins to speak against some of the conflict that I believe is happening in Corinth. He's saying... I, I, Our ministry, my ministry, is not like uh, the other leaders you are listening to in Corinth. A peddler of God's word is somebody who is doing the work of God with ulterior motives. Right? They are are doing it to not, not just get paid, but to gather wealth, to gather prestige, to get people to like them, to think that they're impressive, to gain power. And this is this conflict that is happening in the church in Corinth. And Paul, and he says, we're not like that. My goal coming to you in Corinth isn't to get rich, isn't to gain power or influence or to have you uh, puff me up and think that you like me. My goal has been sincere. Paul says, I've been sent by God. I've been commissioned. He sent me there and my goal has been sincere. My intent with you has been to show you Jesus, to love you, to live my life sacrificially for you as I live for Jesus. And all that I've done has been in the sight of God. He's commissioned it. He sent me. I don't have ulterior motives. And this is this tension that's happening in the church in Corinth. And as I think about it, I think about even just the struggle that we have in our uh, Christian celebrity culture, even with the same idea. And I'm, I'm speaking in generalities here. But uh, even with the best intention, we, uh, people go and they create websites and books and they want to be influencers for the glory of God. And those things are good. But I know our hearts are fickle. I know my heart is fickle. And so as we, as those people start to get wealth and validated and people start to think highly of them and they get more influence and power, it's so easy to feed those things and run after those things as we, as we do the work of the Lord. And so that happens here. We have to fight that. I, I can even admit in my own heart, I have to die to God, uh, die before God. Before you, as I'm on stage, uh, saying, God, make it so my heart doesn't care or doesn't want people here to think highly of me, but that what I do and why I'm preaching your word is so that you are glorified. Just dying to self in that. It's such a fickle part of our heart. And it happens today, but it also happened in Corinth as well. This struggle of are we really doing what God has called us to do with sincere motives? And Paul's saying, "I am. There's no, no bias, there's no other intention here. You can trust me." You might ask, as I go into all of that, why does this matter for me? Right? You're not a celebrity Christian, probably. I'm definitely not, right? Like that's, that's not our identity. And, but why I want to say this is that we believe in something called a priesthood of all believers. Well, and partly, what that means is that you don't need a mediator uh, other than Jesus between you and God, right? You don't. You don't need a pastor to make or a priest to make a confession before you. You have that in Jesus. But what that also means is that the Apostle Paul, pastors, elders aren't the only ones that have been called to surrender their lives to Jesus and live in ministry, being the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. That's true of you too. And so don't miss that. Uh, this, this wrestling, uh, this call towards ministry to, to have a life fully surrendered to Jesus is a call that God has for you as well. Paul has been commissioned, but in Christ Jesus through the Great Commission, you have been commissioned as well, sent out to make Jesus known, to be the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere you go. And I hope that excites you. I hope hope you're not just sitting in your chair thinking about what you're going to do after Sunday service and and just going through the motions, but I hope this excites you because it's real and it's life-changing. What this passage means for you is no matter how weak you are, no matter how much you've messed up, no matter how, how much baggage you have in your life, or how unimpressive you are, no matter how little education or how little money you have, how little cares uh, charisma you have or, or how unextroverted you are, what God says of you is that if you are in me, I'm going to use you in this divine mystery to bring glory to myself. And that you have been called to be the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere to everyone. That God has a call and a purpose on your life. To make Jesus known, so much so that when people experience you and they talk to you, they get a whiff of Jesus and they want more of Him and they want to pursue Him and they experience Him. That that it's so true that verses sixteen and seventeen are true of you as well. That you are weak, you are insufficient, but Christ is sufficient for you. And that our lives need to be based in sincerity, not to gain wealth. Not to get people to like us, not for our comfort, not to gain power, not for all these ulterior motives, but that our lives need to be oriented to live as living sacrifices for Jesus like Paul is. That that's what we've been called to because we've been commissioned, sent out to be as ambassadors, as representatives to the world. And that should pump you up because what that means is God has chosen you. He's placed people in your life that he's going to use you to write redemption stories in their lives. He's going to use you to be the one that that person maybe experiences Jesus for the first time, that they're loved sacrificially, that they're cared for, and they experience God's love and grace and mercy. And so let's live our lives for those things. Wholly surrendered to Jesus. Not about our comfort, not about our wealth, not about all these uh, um, other motives, but instead a life fully surrendered to Jesus, saying, God, how do I live for you? How do I live live surrendered? Again, we've talked about three truths uh, from this passage this morning. That we have strength through weakness, that we are the fragrance of Christ, and we are commissioned by God that we have strength through weakness, that we are weak, that we are weak. And that's okay. That isn't, that isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing because what it means is that my life, your life is not about striving and clawing to look impressive around other people, to gain power or wealth or comfort. But our whole life's purpose is to point to the one who is impressive, the triumphal King Jesus. And this God in a divine mystery has said, your purpose, even though you're weak and broken, is to be the fragrance of the knowledge of me, the knowledge of God to the world, that he's going to use you for that. And in that, he's commissioned you, he sent you, you out so your life has meaning and purpose and it matters. And so don't settle for less. Don't settle for a life of comfort. Don't settle for a life of pursuing wealth. Or power or prestige and desire of how do I live in such a way that people like me, but instead live in such a way that as people interact with you, they smell Jesus. As as they talk to you, as they engage with you, they smell Jesus, they experience Him, and they want more of Him. Because that's what God's called you to. Don't settle for a life of less, but settle for a life that isn't about pointing to how impressive you are, but pointing to how impressive Jesus is, the triumphal king. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. I pray that you would just continue to encourage us through your word, that this would uh, be something that sticks out in our hearts and our minds, that, that we wouldn't think that our life doesn't have matter or doesn't matter or doesn't have perfect purpose or that we're too far gone or we're too weak, Lord, but that we would see what you've called us to do and be excited and surrender our lives to it. God, I thank you that you can use broken people like me and broken people like us to be a part of your kingdom. And God, I don't know why you do that, but it's awesome. And so God, give us a desire to reorient our lives to be the fragrance of you where we go. And that we'd evaluate our lives and say, God, am I living for you? Am I reflecting you? Do people see you in me? God, we need you to do this. We are insufficient, but you are sufficient for us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.